Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our TOSIC Phase 1 and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Gene Barnett, a neurosurgeon in the Cleveland Clinic Neurologic Institute and director of the Rose Ella Burkhart Brain Tumor and Neuro-Oncology Center. He is here today to talk to us about stereotactic radiosurgery for treatment of brain metastases. Welcome, Gene. Thanks, Dale. Happy to be here. So maybe to start, give us a little bit of an idea what you do here at Cleveland Clinic. All right. Well, as you mentioned, I'm a neurosurgeon. I specialize in brain tumors. Uh, run the Brain Tumor and Neuro-Oncology Center, also run the Gamma Knife Center here, which is our main platform for cranial radiosurgery. Very good. So just sort of as a background, um, give us an idea. Patients come in, they present with brain mets. What are the options for them? What, 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 are we, what are we able to offer them? And then maybe we can talk about what's best for individual patients, but give us the lay of the land. Sure. Well, first, uh, brain mets are surprisingly common. They actually are the most common brain tumor in adults. And about 20 to 40 percent of people who get systemic cancers will ultimately uh, get brain uh, metastases. So it's about 10 times more common than the the primary brain cancers. The, The symptoms they present with vary. Uh, They may present with neurological problems like uh, progressive weakness, numbness, visual problems, speech defects, uh, trouble uh, with their gait. Uh, They may present with a seizure. Uh, Very often they'll have no symptoms at all, and these are just picked up on screening. Uh, And actually headaches are surprisingly rare. Uh, So uh, it's really important that uh, primary care and medical oncologists who are taking care of these patients are really tuned into the possibility of these patients developing brain metastases. And the patients themselves ought to be aware that this is a possibility so that they can report early uh, if they have have symptoms. Uh, Because the options are actually better if we get to these when they're smaller uh, and or asymptomatic. Now, uh, the options for any type of brain tumor include observation, doing more testing, uh, treating the tumor or the symptoms it's causing with drugs, doing something surgical like needle biopsy, putting a laser probe in it and, and cooking it, uh, doing a craniotomy to take the tumor out. And then there's the radiation options, which on one extreme are daily low-dose treatments to the whole brain for two or three weeks. And on the other extreme is a single-day targeted radiation treatment where the rest of the head and brain gets almost none. Uh, that's called radio surgery. We use the gamma knife here for that. So observation is exceedingly uh, unlikely uh, in, in these patients, unless there's some question as to whether these are brain metastases or something else, in which case then they may get a short interval scan to remove any doubt. Uh, in terms of further testing, occasionally we will do some further testing to better characterize what's going on, but usually a high-resolution MRI scan is all we really need to clinch the diagnosis in the setting of a patient who is known to have a systemic cancer. In terms of drugs, most drugs that are used to treat systemic cancers don't get across the blood-brain barrier very well. And so they're typically not a frontline treatment, although some drugs are getting somewhat better at this. Uh, 
And certainly if the patient is having uh, symptoms, either neurologic symptoms or seizures, then we would treat those medically. Uh, typically with steroids, if edema is, is an issue, uh, and then uh, uh, with anti-epileptics, if indeed seizures are an issue. In terms of surgery, the need for needle biopsy or stereotactic brain biopsy is rare. Uh, typically, uh, that's reserved where the diagnosis is in doubt. Say they had a remote cancer 10 years ago and have been cancer-free for five years, and now we're seeing things that look like brain metastases. That's the kind of situation where we would uh, seriously consider doing a stereotactic brain biopsy. We usually don't do uh, uh, the laser uh, treatments, the so-called laser interstitial thermal therapy or LIT uh, for frontline treatment for these. Uh, although craniotomy certainly remains fair game when the diagnosis is in doubt and or they are sick from mass effect. Uh, the radiation options, uh, 20 years ago, many or, or most of these patients would have been treated with the whole brain radiation. But we've learned over time that this has serious neurocognitive consequences down the road, um, somewhat lessened by hippocampal sparing techniques and or the use of memantine. Uh, but still, patients are living longer and they have a longer time to then to develop uh, these white matter changes that are associated with uh, neurologic decline. So stereotactic radiosurgery has really emerged as being the mainstay uh, of treatment with brain metastases, uh, either upfront with newly diagnosed metastases or uh, after whole brain radiation if they've had it uh, when new ones pop up. What are some of the, uh, the limitations in ability to use stereotactic radiosurgery? Well, traditionally, size uh, mattered. Uh, that once you got above two centimeters, you had to dial back the dose in order to decrease the risk of adverse radiation events such as uh, radiation necrosis. Now we've gotten around that by doing what we call two-stage radiosurgery, where we'll give the traditional dose uh, for that particular size and then to have the patient come back in a month for a boost or what we call a second stage uh, so that they can get a full dose safely uh, at a lower risk of a radiation injury for, if they had given that whole, a whole dose uh, up front. The other limitation is that it doesn't keep new tumors from growing. It just treats what we can see, unlike whole brain radiation. Uh, but at the same time, it doesn't carry the baggage of neurocognitive decline that whole brain radiation does. And the fact of the matter is that uh, these days we can treat nearly an unlimited number of brain metastases over, over time. What does this look like from a patient perspective in terms of what their experience is as they undergo the treatment and and how well they're likely to do. Because I realize that when I see patients in clinic and I tell them they have a lung met or a liver met, um, they're not nearly as frightened as when I tell them they have a brain met. So how do we uh, we reassure patients that, you know, sometimes it's even hard to get them to get a scan because they don't want to know. How do we how do we decrease that fear and, and uh, improve that experience for them? Well, I think that's totally understandable because people understand the brain is who we are and allows us to do what we want to do. Many people know people who've had brain tumors or know of people who've had, had brain tumors and, and have not done well. I think the point of reassurance is that we actually do a really good job of controlling brain metastases these days uh, with radiosurgery to the extent that most people who have brain metastases don't die from them. Rather, they die of their systemic disease and their brain disease is, is under control. For the vast majority of brain metastases, the control rate is upwards of 90, 95%. And with the stage technique, the uh, control is typically durable. 
So I think that, uh, you know, giving uh, patients um, the facts, again, we don't want to sugarcoat things, but at the same time, giving them the facts that the outcome is actually probably a lot better than they, they were thinking uh, is should be consoling. From a strictly logistic standpoint, um, what's the duration of time? Um, how, how, how does this look? They come to see you and then they have a procedure, recovery times. Um, what, what does that look like for a patient? Sure. So we typically see the patient either virtually or in person uh, after they've been identified uh, as having uh, brain metastases. Uh, and we have an informed consent uh, uh, conversation. Uh, the day of surgery, they undergo high-resolution uh, MRI scans of the brain, which are loaded into our planning computer. Uh, I then survey the brain to determine what it is that we want to treat, as well as nearby structures that we don't want to treat, and compose a plan of different little focal points of radiation, such that in the end, the size, shape, and location of the radiation that's delivered essentially matches the size, shape, and location of each tumor. Uh, sometime after that, uh, we give them some light sedation in the vein. We numb their head up at four points, two in front and two in back, and there we secure a stereotactic reference frame to their head. Uh, they don't feel sharp pain because they're numbed up. They will feel some pressure that some people find uncomfortable, but regardless, that goes away after five or 10 minutes, and afterwards, they shouldn't even feel that it's there. And after the frame's in place, we send them next door to get a special stereotactic CT scan that's also loaded into our planning computer, electronically fused to the MRI scan, I then do some last-minute fine-tuning. Uh, a radiation oncologist then reviews the plan, assigns a dose of radiation to each tumor. The radiation physicist then reviews the plan, makes sure that all the I's are dotted, T's are crossed, and that the machine is operating properly that day. Uh, and then sometime later that day, typically early to mid-afternoon, we then take them across the hall from the room to the treatment room. There they lie down on a couch, similar to a CAT scan or MRI couch, but that frame that's still on their head is part of a precision positioning system that will make up to 192 beams of gamma rays all focused on the spots I picked on the computer to within a fraction of a millimeter. They then slide into the machine up their lower chest, uh, depending upon the size and, and, and uh, uh, location of the tumors, uh, typically about 15 to 20 minutes per tumor. While they're in there, they don't hear, see, smell, feel, taste anything. It's all invisible. They do move around from place to place to place during the treatment. And usually they just listen to the radio on the internet uh, while that's going on. Some people just snooze. While they're in there, we've got several TV cameras on them, a couple of intercoms. People are right outside the door. It could be in a matter of seconds if needed. Then once they're done, we take them out of the machine, back across the hall, remove the frame, put a couple of band-aids on their forehead, watch them for half an hour to an hour or so, then they can go home. They take it easy for a day or two. Most people are back to the normal activity for two to three days. Then usually we get them back in two months for a new scan to see how things look in there. Uh, if indeed they're going to get a second stage, we haven't come back in a month to get that. So really it's uh, it's pretty streamlined and, and patients tolerate that pretty well, which is, is good to know. And again, good for offering reassurance. Yeah, we've been doing gamma knife since 1997 and I've been doing stereotactic radio surgery since 1989. So we have it pretty down pat these days. What are the limitations at this point that could drive this forward? Are there anything, it certainly has been around for a while, but are there anything from a, an equipment standpoint that might make this uh, more useful as a, as a technique in terms of either efficacy or, or adverse effects? Yes, well, we now have the ability to actually do this without a frame. 
uh, and can do it with a mask uh, fixation with electronically um, uh, scanning the patient's head to detect any movement during the treatment. Our gamma knife machine has a cone beam CT attached to the front of it, which can actually do a stereotactic CT scan uh, right then and there on the machine. And it allows us to eliminate the frame in some cases, particularly if it's going to be less than an hour treatment, or if we're going to need to fractionate this over three to five days because, again, of the, of the size or, or location with respect to other critical structures. So, so that certainly uh, has been uh, an advance in the, in, the, uh, in the technology. The other use for, for stereotactic radiosurgery uh, is in, uh, with respect to craniotomy for, for brain metastases. Uh, we know, have known since the 90s that if all you do is take out a brain metastasis, more likely than not, it's going to come back. And uh, the pivotal studies back then showed that patients who also got whole brain radiotherapy after craniotomy did better in terms of tumor control uh, than those who did not. But as I mentioned earlier, whole brain radiotherapy carries the, the baggage of neurocognitive decline. So not that long ago, probably five, 10 years ago, people started experimenting with doing radiosurgery after craniotomy instead of whole brain radiotherapy. And the results actually were surprisingly good, that uh, indeed it doesn't keep new tumors from growing, but it actually seems to do a good job in terms of sterilizing the surgical bed and preventing uh, recurrence. The one downside to it, however, is that there is a small incidence of about 5 to 7% of leptomeningeal disease uh, or subdural spread of tumor recurrence afterwards, since those areas don't get sterilized. And so in the last four or five years or so, uh, people have been looking at doing the radiosurgery before surgically taking out the tumor, so-called neoadjuvant serotactic radiosurgery. And the results there seem to be at least as good in terms of tumor control. And the leptomeningeal disease risk is far, far lower, probably one to 2%. So if indeed surgery is contemplated, and from a logistical standpoint, one can work radiosurgery in beforehand, then we try and do that these days. But sometimes you just can't do that, in which case then we resort uh, to doing the adjuvant or post-craniotomy uh, radiosurgery uh, in those cases. But we virtually eliminated the need for whole brain radiation in those settings unless the patient already has known leptomeningeal disease. So... Patients sometimes come through and they think that something newer is necessarily better. But as you described, you, you currently are using 192 beams and you have great localization and can really uh, can, can keep patients in the same fixed location to treat them. But questions that sometimes come up are about proton beam um, in other settings. What, what role, if any, is there for a proton beam in this situation? So, so far, there's really no clear indication that proton beam is in any way superior for the treatment of brain metastasis than uh, so-called photon beams, uh, which is what we're using uh, uh, with the gamma knife and how most other radiosurgery platforms are operating. Certainly, there is work going on to, to try and determine whether there is superiority of one or the other or non-inferiority. But... Uh, that was going to take some time to answer. There's really no reason to think uh, that protons are really going to be superior uh, for the treatment of these with, with very rare exceptions. 
there any particular parts of the brain that are still more difficult to treat than others? Well, the brainstem uh, is kind of the Manhattan of the brain, you know, in terms of functional density. Whereas you can get away with some swelling and edema uh, up in the cerebral hemispheres or even out in the cerebellar hemispheres, that, that isn't as well tolerated in uh, the brainstem. So we have to dial the dose down from what we would actually like to give for a given size, but we still can do the staging uh, that I talked about. So ultimately, the patient can wind up getting a, a full dose with minimal risk of an adverse radiation effect. What are we uh, looking into in terms of uh, systemic therapies in combination with uh, stereotactic radiosurgery? You mentioned that you, you treat the given areas that you know about, but it doesn't really minimize your risk for additional lesions developing. So are we doing things in terms of adding systemic therapies? So as you're probably aware, Dale, that there are new agents that do cross the blood-brain barrier and have shown some efficacy in treating brain metastases. Now, most of the data that I've seen actually suggests that uh, the combination of radiosurgery with those agents uh, is superior in terms of tumor control than either one of these uh, by themselves. So I think there's actually a synergy with uh, these new agents and uh, still the opportunity for medical oncologists and the, the radiosurgery teams to work hand in hand to get better control of these uh, tumors for their patients. So much like you talked about radiation and surgery and sort of when how you sequence those, what, what are the current thoughts about sequencing a systemic therapy with stereotactic radiosurgery? So uh, typically, uh, radiosurgery does not get in the way of um, the patient going on either conventional chemotherapy or some of these new targeted therapies, immunotherapies, uh, whatever. The only real limitation that we have is that uh, we normally give a short course of steroids uh, after doing radiosurgery to minimize the risk of early swelling and seizure because there is a slight risk of that in the first week uh, after radiosurgery unless you use the steroids, which of course that's a no-no with immunotherapy. We've all, all know that that can uh, decrease the efficacy. So in those cases, we don't we forego the steroids and put them on a short course, uh, about, about two weeks worth. And that seems to work quite well, both in terms of prophylaxis against seizure, but also not getting in the way of the immunotherapy. So from our standpoint, the medical oncologist can do whatever he or she wants in terms of administering the medical therapy, irrespective of whether they're going to get gamma knife and when they're going to get gamma knife. So we have a, a center here that has a tremendous amount of experience doing this. And my question would be, uh, what are the particular things we do here differently, you think do better? What's the type of patient that really should come here to get evaluated, to be perhaps treated here compared to other places? Well, you know, again, we've been doing this for a very long time. I've been doing this for a very long time. Uh, we have a very experienced team. I think we are as experienced as just about anybody else out there. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, our expertise is recognized such that we're one of a handful of uh, centers around the world that are authorized by the manufacturer of the gamma knife uh, to teach physicians, surgeons, radiation oncologists, medical oncologist, how to do gamma knife uh, radiosurgery. In fact, uh, we have a course going this week as we speak. When you think about uh, the progress we've made, what do you think is going to be the next leap? What's 
what's a gap or where, where, where should we be thinking about directing um, our energies to make this even better? Well, I think in the end, you know, better drugs, uh, drugs that, uh, that produce control without even having to do radio surgery. I know that might put me out of business, but if they're safe, effective drugs that are well tolerated, then so be it. There's always other things besides uh, brain metastases that we can treat uh, with radio surgery and probably will be for the foreseeable future. Uh, I think uh, basically radio surgery technology, as you said, has been around for now. It's mature. Uh, I don't really think it's going to get any better. It does the job. Uh, so far, any effort to come up with radio sensitizers for radio surgery have really not come up with any benefit. So I, I think in, in terms of radio surgery, we're at, at a high point uh, and uh, again, more drugs, more development uh, with our team in medical oncology to work together uh, to get control of these, this all too common problem. Well, Gene, I appreciate uh, your insights today. I appreciate your help for our patients and uh, appreciate you being here with us today. So, Dale, thanks for the opportunity. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash canceradvancespodcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.